Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you're in the room live, watching online or later on demand, or even listening to our podcast, it's a great day to be at Dayspring. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not in ours. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives. One little step at a time, learning to live like Jesus. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. We love to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. Even if you aren't sure that you want to be on that journey with us, maybe you are skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too, so I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. In the Old Testament, uh, Ezekiel was a prophet and priest living about 600 years before Jesus. It was a messy season of life for the Jewish nation. Well, nations, really. By this point, the one nation of Israel had broken into two nations, Israel and Judah. And both nations had been taken into captivity by Babylon, which means Ezekiel was a prophet and priest living in captivity. Most of his prophecies were written from Babylon and one of his key themes was the holiness of God and how it contrasted with the sin of the people of God. Last week, Cap very capably camped out on one of the key themes of Peter's letters, holiness and our call to be holy. Uh, Just to remind us, let's look at verses 15 and 16 in chapter 1. Peter writes, But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Now by scriptures, Peter is referring to God's instructions given to the Jews in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Be holy because I am holy. Be holy in everything you do. As we learned from Cap, to be holy literally means to be set apart, unique, or entirely different. God is holy because he is the creator. And as the creator, he is utterly different and unlike anything else in his creation. Therefore, he is holy. And we are to be like him, holy in everything we do. Now, the good news is that when we entered our relationship with Jesus, our, uh, the, the, the blood of Jesus positionally made us holy forever. 
regardless of our past sins, our current sins, and our future sins, God sees us as holy through the blood of Jesus. We also call this justification. We were justified before God through the blood of Jesus. That is a once and done event that secures our position in the family of God. But, and here's the bad news, we are still broken people living in broken bodies in a broken world. And practically, we are far from holy. So we begin the lifelong process of becoming holy. We have been set apart or made holy to become entirely different from the world we live in. Made holy to become holy. But what does that, what does that look like? Uh, we know that on this side of heaven, we'll never be completely holy. So what does it look like to become holy? Which brings us back to Ezekiel. In one of his prophecies, beginning in chapter 40, he was given a vision for a restored temple of God, a temple that has yet to be built even today, some 2,600 years after Ezekiel's vision. Uh, this is one of those sections that we probably have a tendency to speed read through or skip altogether. It is verse after verse of measurements for this restored temple. Section by section, room by room, the, the temple is described. The outer courts, the north gate, the south gate, the chambers for the priests, the inner courts. The, the kinds of details that usually make my eyes glaze over. Now here's an artist's drawing of what is described to Ezekiel. Amy Pierce drew this for my book. Uh, in the center of the temple is the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. It housed the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the, the presence of God. In ancient times, the only person who could enter the Holy of Holies was the high priest, and then only once a year. They would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle just in case there was some sin in his life that was offensive to God so that they could pull him out if he was zapped dead. The Holy of Holies, the place where God dwelled, was set apart from the rest of the temple. Now you'll notice that the temple itself is square. Ezekiel 42.20 tells us that each side is 500 cubits which is about 875 feet, and that the outer walls separate the holy from the common, which doesn't mean that it is unholy. God makes a distinction here between holiness and the common, but he never says that the common is unholy. Living a life of holiness is never common or ordinary, even in the midst of common surroundings. It is just less holy than the actual presence of God and in the actual temple non-priests would would be allowed uh, would be allowed in those outer courts but not in the inner courts but Ezekiel's vision doesn't stop there e Ezekiel 45:1 tells us that when they build this temple they are to set aside a sacred space or holy district for God that is about 7 miles long by 6 miles wide in a circle, that's three to three and a half miles in every direction around the temple. It's not a wildlife refuge or a peaceful sanctuary where nothing ever happens. It is set aside for the priests and their families, those who are called to be intentional about holiness. Now, just to give you a little perspective, if you were to Google Earth the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, you'd see a picture of what it looks like today. 
of course, there is no temple because it was destroyed in 70 AD, but you could see the Islamic Dome of the Rock sharing the 35 acres that make up the Temple Mount. In contrast to those 35 acres, Ezekiel's future holy space around the temple will be 26,880 acres. The holy district that God demands the temple to be surrounded by is 42 square miles. Again, set apart. Obviously not as holy as the holy of holies, nor as holy as the temple proper, which is described as common, but still set apart. Now, you see, any place that God dwells should have a border that radiates from the center, extending out beyond what we can see. On level ground, the average person can see about three miles. Isn't it interesting that God doesn't even want to see unholiness from afar? So for us, we have been positionally through Christ made holy. And in being made holy, it is like we have been relocated spiritually and are now living in the sacred space that surrounds the temple. We have been set apart from all that is unholy. We are being made holy now as we posture our lives toward the holy of holies, which is no longer located in a physical temple, but in the mini temple located in you and me. And collectively, as we, we learned in our series in Ephesians, collectively, we, the church, capital C, are a full representation of this new temple on display for the powers and principalities of the spiritual realm to see the wisdom of God being played out on a grand cosmic scale as we love others like Jesus loves us. Our holiness is made visible, made tangible by the way we love. Now, back in 1 Peter chapter 2, let's use that imagery to frame what Peter writes. This is the context for our holiness. A sip, since Cap ended uh, with verse 3 last week, let's pick it up in verse 4. You are coming to Christ. That is, uh, you are coming to Christ not by your initial conversion to Christ. This isn't about your justification. This is about the posture of your new life in Christ as you seek to become practically holy. But please note that in the original language, the intention here is that God is the one who is ultimately responsible for our growth. We actively participate, we actively and freely choose to be obedient, but ultimately only God can make us holy. So this could say you are becoming holy as you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people. That is, he was rejected by the Jews, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. Now, as a side note, the first century building practices often included using new stones from fresh quarries shaped to fit perfectly into place. But 
it was cheaper and faster to reuse old stones by chiseling them into the appropriate shape. Even today, archaeologists find evidence of this practice in the ruins that they unearth. The first century church saw these building practices as a great metaphor for God's word in building the church with living stones. And whether the stones were the new stones of the Gentile believers or the old stones of the Jewish believers, both would require cutting, chiseling, and shaping to fit them into a new unified church. So now we are the living stones God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Now in the Old Testament, God's people had a priest. But now all of God's people are the priests. Each of us has the privilege of coming into the presence of God. And thanks to Jesus, we don't have to tie a rope around our ankle. And we come into the presence of God through the mediation of Jesus Christ. We offer spiritual sacrifices that please God, as the scriptures say. I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor. And anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word. And so they meet the fate that was planned for them. Now here, Peter is giving a full description of Jesus Christ. He is the living stone because he conquered death when he was resurrected back to the land of the living. He is the chosen stone of God the Father, and he is precious. And here, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16, and Psalm 118, 22 in his description of Jesus. Uh, these might be good verses for you to go back and look at on your own. But while Jesus might be the living chosen stone of God, he was not the kind of stone they were expecting, and so they rejected him. They stumbled over him. Had they believed the scriptures that they knew by heart, they would have been saved. Although even today, knowing far more about Jesus than they ever did, people stumble over Christ in disbelief. So like Jesus, we have become living stones in this new temple that Jesus is building, which we know collectively as the capital C Church, there is only one church. We are all living stones in one church. Peter was writing uh, this letter to believers living in five provinces. And yet he told them that they all belong to one spiritual body. All believers are living stones in one temple. And each time someone new comes to Christ, a new stone is put into place. Whether we agree with one another or not, all Christians are stones in the same building. Unity is one of our highest callings. We are one church serving one God, and we must not permit our differences to destroy the unity that we have through Christ. Now, all of that also means that we are priests in the same temple. Uh, let's continue in verse 9. But you are not like that. Now, I've yapped a lot since the end of verse face. Verse 8, so we're not like those who have stumbled over the chief cornerstone. For you are a chosen people, 
You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Like the Israelites of old, once you had no identity as a people. Now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. So Peter is tying into verse 5 here as he changes metaphors from living stones to royal priests. We no longer have an earthly priest. We have become priests, which means that we should live as priests live. As they should live. We posture our lives toward holiness, freely choosing to more and more become entirely different than the world around us entirely different. Think about it like this. The world values power. Entirely different means we value humility. The world values outer beauty. Entirely different means we value inner beauty. The world values riches. Entirely different means we value generosity. The world values self-gratification. Entirely different means we value serving others instead of ourselves. Now, I could go on, and, uh, go on and on. There really isn't any middle ground. Holiness is entirely different than the world around us. A posture of holiness leaves us moving toward God in the Holy of Holies with our back to the world. That's priestly living. And the giving of our bodies and minds to him as living sacrifices. The praise of our lips and the good works we do for others take the place of the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Also included would be money and other material things that we leverage for his kingdom purposes and the people that we influence for Christ. We offer these sacrifices through Christ as priests and he makes them acceptable to God. We have also a completely new identity with new citizenship. Peter continues in verse 11. Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. With our new citizenship comes responsibility. We no longer belong to this world. We are called to live separate or completely different from the world, but not isolated from the world. We are temporary residents and foreigners with a purpose. The, the world needs our influence and witness. They need our positive presence. In fact, they're watching. They can't help it. Those living in the dark can only see because the light of the light shining around them. And we are always on display. But as Warren Wiersbe writes, separation is not isolation. It's contact without contamination. Just as God called the people of Israel to be a unique nation with a special purpose among pagan nations, he has called the church to be a unique witness of Jesus Christ in a wicked and depraved generation. 
God has called us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light to shine for his glory and his purposes. Remember, that the churches that Peter was writing to were experiencing a wave of persecution. Uh, alone, there was very little hope. But in each of these identities, we find the power of one unified community. We are one family of God with the same divine nature. We are all living stones in one building, priests serving in one temple, citizens of the same homeland. We are brothers and sisters united through Jesus Christ. Together, we are the body of Christ. And we make Christ visible to a dark and dying world. And the gates of hell will never prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. But make no mistake about it. We are living in enemy territory. And the enemy is constantly prowling about looking for opportunities to dim our light. To bring us down to solely the name of Jesus. As Charles Swindoll writes in his commentary, we live in the midst of a pagan culture surrounded by pagan people who embrace a pagan philosophy, a pagan way of life, and a pagan attitude toward believers. God has planted us here to be the ambassadors of a different, an entirely different kingdom, and to lead others to that city whose architect and builder is God. And with that thought in mind, we transition into the second major section of 1 Peter. It will take us through verse 11 in chapter 4. In the course of my lifetime, I've been on more mission trips than I can count. I've been to Italy, Honduras a couple of times, the Dominican Republic a few times, and Peru and Argentina many times. Do you know that all of those countries are different than the United States? And the churches in those countries operate differently than churches do in the United States. Their structure is different. Their focus is different. Their training is different. Their way of interacting with the world around them is different. Their their entire context is different than ours. And that's okay. I always try to focus on the things we have in common rather than focusing on the things that are different. I am just a visitor to their context I don't get how how it works in their context. I watched church leaders in Italy pay bribes to get things done. That seems weird to me. I struggle with the concept, but I don't live in their context. I am a foreigner, a traveler, and I will soon return home. But they have to figure out how to be Jesus in their context. And most of the time, they don't ask for my help. They don't answer to me in any way. So I just refrain from judging them. As we say around the office, not my circus, not my monkeys. Now, this isn't just true in foreign foreign countries. What we've seen from Peter and we see in the writings of the Apostle Paul is that this entire world is not our home. Even here in the U.S., we are temporary residents and foreigners. We are citizens of another kingdom. I am a citizen of the kingdom of God before I am a citizen of the United States of America. And while I might currently have dual citizenship, I do not have dual allegiances. It is the kingdom of God first, every time. As an ambassador, I am called to be salt and light, representing the king of the universe to a dying, a world dying in sin. I am not responsible to change the systems of this world which all fall under the authority of Satan for this season of time. 
Whether it is communist China, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the socialist dictatorships of North Korea or Russia, or any of the free democracies in the Western world, including the United States, Satan is the one calling the shots. The Bible's very clear about that. I am an ambassador. You are an ambassador, not called to change the systems of this world, but to love the people stuck in the systems of this world on his behalf. Now, here in the U.S., that might get a little fuzzy at times. As Peter was writing this, uh, Rome ruled the known world, and though they called themselves a republic, it really didn't work that way for non-Romans and even most Romans much of the time. Depending on who was in charge, it was a benevolent dictatorship and at, its, at its best and an authoritarian regime at its worst. And Christians, uh, the Christians of the first century were experiencing the authoritarian regime part. They had no power to change anything. In our role as ambassadors, which is our primary allegiance here in the U.S., changing the systems of this country is not a responsibility. Just like it isn't the Japanese ambassador's role to change the systems of the U.S., but to simply represent the Japanese people and their leadership. What gets fuzzy for us at times is that as dual citizens, we do have some opportunities that are unique to our time and culture that other Christians in the past, the present, and the future do not or will not have. Some opportunities to influence those systems. And as we have opportunities to fight for truth and justice in life, we should. But as this next section is going to tell us, we must be very careful and extremely wise in making decisions about when and how to live by our kingdom's rules over our government's rules. We must keep our priorities in order. Ambassador first, allegiance to the king of the universe first, anything else as a citizen of the U.S. is second. Becoming holy means we posture ourselves toward the presence of God which means that everything else, including our citizenship in the United States, is at our back. Now, all that to say, for the Lord's sake, because of what God has done for you, as a representative of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 13 says, For the Lord's sake, submit to all human authority whether the king as head of state or the officials he has appointed. For the king has sent them to punish those who do wrong and to honor those who do right. Now this one is hard. It's hard to submit to human authority that you don't respect. And across the board, regardless of political leanings at the national level, the state level, county, cities, even school boards and water boards, policemen and firemen, whomever is in charge, if you don't like them or what they represent, it, it's hard to submit. It doesn't matter who's in charge, Democrats, Republicans, other. At the end of the day, no one has authority unless it is allowed by God. We might get to vote here in the United States, but God is still sovereign overall, and he appoints leaders. I'm sure that Pontius Pilate would say that he was appointed by Rome, but Jesus said otherwise. So, so we submit, and to submit in the Greek is hypotasso. It ascribes deference to another person's authority. So here it doesn't just mean civil obedience, but it goes deeper to the heart level. We submit with a willing heart. 
As Jesus put it in Matthew 22, we render under Caesar our civil obedience, but hypotasso is more than just civil obedience. It's a, a heart orientation. And as Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we pray sincerely for those in authority over us, regardless of politics. We also live and talk honorably and peacefully in their realms. We strive to be model citizens, not social rebels and misfits. Because it's not about us. It's about the king we serve. And in verse 15, it is God's will that your honorable lives should silence those ignorant people who make foolish accusations against you. Now focus, focus on the, that for a moment. It is God's will that the way we live should silence those who make foolish accusations against us. If you've got a good hard copy of your Bible, circle the word silence. If you're following along in your YouVersion Bible app, you'll need to highlight the whole verse. If you're following along on your screens, keep your grubby mitts off them. Use your imagination. Here, here's the deal. The cross is a big enough stumbling block for most people. Jesus is a big enough stumbling block. As ambassadors of eternity, we do not want to make ourselves an additional stumbling block that someone has to get past for their eternity with Jesus. My grandfather entered his eternity at the end of this last year, just shy of 75 years of marriage with my grandmother. To the very best of my knowledge, his eternity will be hot. I believe he died not knowing Jesus. The cross was just too big of a stumbling block for him and grandma. But the people of God in their community made everything worse by the way they lived. I know from grandma that part of their rejection of Jesus is those Jesus followers who didn't follow Jesus very well. So now, even if, now, even if those Jesus followers were fantastic people of God, my grandfather might still have rejected the cross. But we'll never know which stumbling block was the biggest. That's what Peter means here. Be good citizens because someone is always watching you. Silence their arguments against Jesus by the way you live. Yes, you are free. But Peter continues in verse 16. You are free, yet you are God's slaves. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to do evil. Now, one of the biggest understandings we have in Scripture is what it means to be free. Uh, to have freedom. This is another thing that we confuse with our American freedom. American freedom is the freedom to do whatever the heck I want. It is me-centered freedom. Biblical freedom is the freedom to do good. It is other-centered freedom. We are no longer in bondage to evil. We have been freed from evil to do good. So don't use your freedom to not do good. Whatever good might be in whatever scenario you come up with. Galatians 5 says, do not use your freedom uh, to do that. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. That's it. It'll come back to me at some point. Okay, verse 17. Respect everyone and love the family of believers. Fear God and respect the king. Now don't forget how Peter started this section. For the sake of God, we love. On his behalf, we honor and respect all people, regardless of their faith in Christ and their attitudes toward Christianity. 
And we love our brothers and sisters in Christ unconditionally. And we honor God as we treat his will as supreme over all. And we honor people in authority over us who may or may not agree with us about anything we love or believe in. Nothing about what the Bible teaches is conditional upon our government's modeling Christian values and morality. Nero was notoriously cruel toward Christians, and those first century brothers and sisters were still called to honor and submit to the authorities over them. We don't have it that bad, and we struggle with it. But someone is watching you, and their eternity is at stake. Is your short-term convenience more important than their long-term destination? Moving on, verses 18 to 20 essentially repeat the idea of not being a stumbling block in the common context, uh, in the first century context of slavery. In fact, 25 to 40 percent of the first century world would have been slaves in Roman society. Slaves were a whole social class at this, at this time. By the way, God never endorses slavery anywhere in the Bible, for the record. It was and probably will be until Jesus comes again, a system of this world that is under the authority of Satan. Uh, Peter's purpose here isn't to address the system of slavery, but to provide direction for Christians who are slaves in that system. For us, the best correlation would be our workplaces, but even then, we do have the American freedom to quit and find another job. So it isn't a perfect correlation. However, the same principles we just talked about would it still apply. People are watching, and we want to represent Jesus well. So, verse 18 you who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. When we as ambassadors do the will of God, even when it costs us something, God is pleased. For God called you to do good. That is what we have been freed for, to do good. Even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is your example, and you must follow in his footsteps. And then Peter closes by re reminding us that we follow the only one in history who had every right to lodge a complaint, yet remain silent. The only one who could have called down judgment on uh, the judgment of heaven on his enemies, yet endured undeserved judgment. And he did it all for us, so that we could be free to do the same. Uh, our Jesus, verse 22, never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body of, on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Only by following the example of Jesus will we build lives that will not be shaken during times of trouble. And following the example of Jesus always postures our lives toward holiness. We were made holy to become holy. And when our lives are postured in that direction, God uses every circumstance, 
every scenario, good or bad, he redeems those bad ones to make us more like Jesus, which makes us better ambassadors of his kingdom, shining more brightly in a world desperate for light. Don't think about that the next time you are unjustly accused or misunderstood or frustrated with our political leaders or your boss. How should you respond? It's easy. Two words. Like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have called us out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. Father, thank you that you have, uh, in, in doing so, you have freed us from the power of sin in our lives, freed us to do good, to live good lives, to bless others, to love others like Jesus loves us. Teach us how to posture our lives toward your holiness in everything we do. Even as we pray, I would guess that you can think of some place in your life that is not entirely different from the world around you. Let me just be bold enough to say that whatever that is, turn your back. Posture your life toward holiness. Father, may we be the kind of ambassadors that bring you glory in everything we do and everything we say in every moment of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, on your own or with others, will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. Faithful people like you make this ministry possible. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring, who have experienced God's work in and through their own lives and been changed in the process. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. We are simply excited to play a small part as God does His perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. And if this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Until we meet again, I am praying that God's richest blessings would overflow in and through your life.